Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend, your audio supplement to the news from Israel, the Middle East and the Jewish world. I'm Simon Spungin. On today's show... We have a two-part show for you this week, listener. In part two, I'll be chatting to Gidon Levy about his dinner with Sarah and Benjamin Netanyahu, and we'll try to analyse the furious responses it provoked among the Israeli left. First up, though, someone who finds himself inadvertently on the front lines of the battle against Israeli-sponsored anti-BDS laws across the United States. Alan Leverett is the founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times, a monthly magazine based in Little Rock, and I'm delighted to welcome him onto the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Alan. Pleased to be here. Uh, So I I guess our listeners are probably wondering why we've invited the publisher of of what you yourself call a small Arkansas newspaper onto the podcast, unless that is they've read your recent op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, Can you tell us how you've become embroiled in the heated debate over the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement? Well, the... I think the Israeli government was looking for a way to slow down or hinder the, the the BDS movement in the United States. And they came up, they they worked through an organization called ALEC, which is a right wing organization that uh, wines and dines Republican legislators every year at a big event. And uh, during these these events, they present the legislators with what they call model legislation, where all you have to do is type in your state's name and pass it. And they do this on, they've done this over over the years on a number of different sort of culture war issues. And this one was, uh, if you boycotted Israel, you had to sign a pledge that you would not boycott Israel if you wanted to continue doing business with the state of Arkansas. And these laws have passed now in 33 states around the country. And, you know, I don't blame the government of Israel for doing this. I mean, it, I mean, they've got their interests that they're trying to look out for. My objection is that my the people that represent me, uh, particularly our local legislators, are not protecting our basic First Amendment and 14th Amendment rights as Americans. And instead, they're trying to force us to support the foreign policy of a foreign government. And if we want to do business with our own local government, and we consider that to be a violation of our First Amendment rights to free speech. Mm-hmm. I, I did a quick search of the Arkansas Times archive, Alan, and, and mm-hmm. from what I could glean, your publication wasn't particularly focused on Israel. Most of the headlines that I saw uh, were about the frequent outrages of, of Mike Huckabee, your former governor, and, yeah. and, 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 and cultural issues. Yeah, we're, we're, it's, the Arkansas Times is an intensely local publication intensely okay and we're not boycotting israel we have no intention of boycotting israel it hadn't occurred to us until now and uh but we're not going to we don't you know if the state of arkansas says you have to take a particular political position and in this case promise not to uh boycott israel 
well, we're not going to sign that pledge because we don't trade our political positions for advertising. And it's just, it's completely unethical. We just don't do that. And so the answer is no, uh, we will not sign your pledge. I don't care if, I don't care what the pledge is for. Boycott anyone, I decide I want to boycott for that matter. That's my right as an American. This country was founded on the boycott of tea. That's what kicked off the American Revolution was the Boston Tea Party. It was a, and a boycott is political speech. It is a way of using your, your buying power to influence a particular political position. We had the Montgomery bus boycott back in the 50s in, uh, in uh, uh, Montgomery, Alabama. It was a civil rights deal. We had the, we had the great boycott in California during the 60s uh, to support the great workers trying to unionize. Uh, Lord, Port Gibson, Mississippi. Uh, where the the NAACP organized a black boycott of the businesses there in Port Gibson because they would not hire black people, and they the the merchants sued the NAACP. They lost in the Mississippi Supreme Court, and they won a unanimous verdict in the U.S. Supreme Court that their actions were their boycott was political and therefore protected uh, protected speech. And that's been our argument. We haven't been particularly successful at it. The state of Arkansas, we, we, we filed suit against the state of Arkansas. We initially lost in district court. Uh, the state of Arkansas argued that this wasn't protected political speech. This was just an economic action and therefore uh, subject to regulation by the state. And again, we're not boycotting Israel, but we are not going to sign it. And the fact that they're trying to make us sign it is basically trying to force us into taking a position in support of Israel, which we don't care to do. You know, we don't have a dog in that hunt. Mm. So that's uh, where we are. For the record, we're talking about uh, Act 710, which prohibits the state of Arkansas from contracting with or investing in companies that boycott Israel, in quotes. Now, that's, mm-hmm. that, that sounds rather vague. Is that part of your legal argument, the, the fuzziness? Well, not so much, but it's, it's the, the law is absurd. Uh, here, here's something that hasn't come up in any of the stories so far. There's a, there's a clause in this law that the sponsor didn't even know about. Duh, Senator Hester didn't even know about this. We can go ahead and continue receiving advertising from the state of Arkansas without signing the pledge, so long as we give the state of Arkansas a 20% discount. Literally taking 20% off the price and, and, and the whole law goes away. If we'll just tip the state of Arkansas like they're our waiter or something in a restaurant, we'll just tip them then the compelling interest of the state of Arkansas, this compelling interest that the state of Arkansas says they have in forcing us to sign a, 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 a pledge of loyalty to Israel, that all goes away if we'll just give a 20% discount. I mean, I mean it's like Walmart. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's absurd. So, I mean, this whole bill is, I mean, and, and they, they've done this all across the country and it's just, and, and they've lost in every court. These, this law has been overturned in Texas, it's been overturned in Arizona, it's been overturned in Kansas, and I understand it's been overturned now in Georgia. Unfortunately, we got a conservative court, and we, we went to, we appealed our loss here in Little Rock, and we went to the Eighth Circuit Court in uh, uh, St. Louis, and we went before a three-judge panel. We actually won that one, two to one, but now the state appealed. They want to refer the full circuit court and they agreed to do it and we've 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 made we've made that appearance and 
you know, the questioning was pretty hostile. In fact, one of the one of the judge one of the judges said we were we were making the argument that you know how can you say this isn't this all hinges around whether a boycott is is political speech or economic action, and you know our our ACLU lawyer says well you know this country one of the founding mythologies of this company this country was the boycott of tea. And the Boston Tea Party, one of the judges said, well, I don't think the Boston Tea Party would be considered constitutional today, the boycott of tea. And, you know, that's just we just kind of look at each other and go, you know, that's not what it's not what we learned in civics class in, in junior high school. So um, anyway, but that's what we're doing. And so we're, we're not backing down. Win or lose. Uh, we're not changing anything. And the ACLU lawyers want to take this to the Supreme Court very conservative court these days but that's that's their plan so we'll see how it goes you mentioned senator bart hester who who proposed yeah. the law i i read a quote from him i think you quoted in your op-ed in in the times as mm -hmm. well yeah. um I, i'm going to read this quote out for our listeners there is going to be certain things that happen in israel before christ returns there will be famines and disease and war and the jewish people are going to go back to their homeland at that point jesus christ will come back to earth anybody jewish or not jewish that doesn't accept christ in my opinion will end up going to hell end quote first yeah. of all wow uh, secondly yeah. do you believe that there is a religious element to this law as much as a political one it's the israeli government using the a very powerful uh influential voting block here in the united states and by that i mean the evangelical conservative christians and the Christians using the state of Israel in a way. Uh, so Senator Hester is an evangelical conservative Christian, and they believe by sort of stitching together a variety of scriptural passages from Revelations and Daniel and mm. uh, several other books of the Bible that in order for their for Jesus uh, return and uh, in order for there to be Armageddon in the in the end times, that Israel must regain its biblical borders. Its capital needs to be in Jerusalem, which, which you know, the Trump has uh, had support from the evangelicals for that very reason. And also that we got to go back to the time of King David and Solomon. And then when that happens, then we're going to have the second coming. We're going to have Armageddon. And everyone who doesn't believe in Christ uh, will go to hell, specifically the Jews and the and the non-Christians and the, the other non-Christians, and then the the world will disappear into a ball of fire. So that's what's driving this. So you have the evangelicals, and, the, and that's why Alec brought this to the Republican legislators, as Bart Hester will tell you, in the Arkansas legislature, over half of those legislators are evangelical Christians. Mm. So they bring this, and this is a great way for these state legislators to help Israel so that basically the world can be destroyed at some point, including Israel. And it's just nuts. But that's what that's that's what's driving this. And Bart Hester, you read his quotes. Mm -hmm. He's he's pretty upfront about this. And now there is a strain of evangelicalism that says, well, the, the Jews are going to get it right this time. And when they see that this, you know, when Christ returns, this time they'll recognize him. And so they'll accept it and they won't go to hell. But, you know, 
is it that easy? Is it that easy for Israel, in your opinion, to convince these state legislators to to, to pass this law? It, well, they're they're already they're already sweetness? no. It's just it's just it's a perfect storm. The Israeli leadership wants to control or you know prevent BDS from taking place in the United States. Well, one way to do that is eliminate government contracts from anyone who threatens to boycott Israel. And of course, again, we're not boycotting Israel, but but we're not going to sign the dead gum pledge. So um, that's yeah, it's that simple because because the, the, the evangelical right was already there and they're looking for ways that they support Israel. But they, you got to understand if you're an Israeli, why they support you. And maybe it doesn't matter because, I mean, I'm sure Israeli officials going to look at this and you know, sort of chuckle under his breath and say, well, these fools, but they're useful and they're useful to Israeli policy. The problem is, is my representatives are not, they're not standing up for the constitution in doing this. They're, they're sitting there thumping their Bible. Instead, they ought to be reading the bill of rights. Mm. I understand that you have the support of, of Barry Block, the, the rabbi of Arkansas's yeah, largest synagogue. Sure. Uh, was it important to you to have Jewish support, given the accusation from some quarters that boycotting Israel is inherently anti-Semitic? Well, that's that's like saying that's like saying that if I loathe Donald Trump's policies, then I'm anti-American because I'm anti-Trump. I can be anti-Netanyahu, and I'm not anti-Israel. And so, first of all, the whole idea of it, that's just a trope. And that whole idea that someone's anti-Semitic because they just, with the earthly policies of a, of a nation state, is it, just absurd. Mm. It's great to have very support. Uh, we didn't, we didn't actually, we didn't ask for it. We didn't, we didn't ask anybody. I mean, but this is, we know, we know what, we know what's, what we have to do to be right. I mean, we know what, what, what commands us as journalists and we're not for sale. We're, you know, a lot of journalists are for sale, but we're not, we're not even for rent. So, you know, that, that's just the way it is. And, and we're not going to, sign their pledge in return I, for advertising. Are you worried for the future of your publication? And of I'm course not, I am. I, I mean, have you, have you, have you looked into publishing recently? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like being in the payphone business. I mean, it's tough and uh, you're trying to, you know, we have completely reinvented our business plan over the last three or four years. And, and we're actually in the black now, even with this boycott mess going on. But, you know, it's just, you know, you, you, but we've been doing this for 47 years. I started this company when I was 22. And I'll tell you what, we started this company on $200 47 years ago, and we're still here. And it's going to take a whole lot more in the state of Arkansas trying to mess with our advertising to put us under, you know, and that, that ain't going to get it. So that's the way it is. Now, uh, you, you mentioned the documentary that filmmaker Julia uh, Baja. How have reactions been to that documentary? Well, you know, not many people have seen it. Certainly our staff has seen it mm. and uh, we've gotten great support, you know, just amongst family and friends. But this what they'll do, this is probably it is a really powerful documentary. And, and, and I will say, you know, I sat there and, you know, they, they're profiling us, but they're also profiling a Palestinian-American speech therapist in Texas and they're profiling a liberal lawyer in Arizona who works in the prisons 
as a, as a lawyer for inmates. So when I'm watched that, I mean, Israel does not come out looking good. I mean, one thing that this, this thing is sort of backfired a little bit is, I mean, you sit there and you, you, you watch the, you watch the documentary, you kind of think someone needs to be paying attention to this a little bit better on the Israeli side, because Israel doesn't look good doing this when you've got, you know, screaming children being hauled away and everything. I mean, it's not, it's not good, but in this, and it's ironic that this, this, this tempest in a teapot has, is, is drawing a whole lot of attention and not all of it is good. Mm. I, I assume I, I assume the documentary ends on on a bit of a legal cliffhanger. Maybe we'll have to wait for the sequel to uh, to see how it all pans well, out in the courts. Well, uh, I'm 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 certainly waiting on the sequel, and uh, <laughs> you know. But I was talking to uh, Brian, who's the ACLU lawyer. He was at the premiere, and and he said, you know, it's probably going to be the first of the year after the first of the year before we hear anything. So uh, I don't know. But in the meantime, we'll just keep on doing what we're doing. And uh, and hope for the best. Well, but, we uh, we will certainly be be keeping an eye on your on your legal struggle and 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 wish you the best of luck with it, Alan. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Take care. Stay with us, listener. After this jingle, we'll be dialing up Gidon Levy. Gidon, great to have you back on the podcast. Great to be back on the podcast. <laughs> So listen, I deliberated long and hard whether to even have this discussion with you, Gidon. On the one hand, I'm extremely curious about your dinner party with a certain Mr. and Mrs. Netanyahu. But on the other hand, I kind of want to let sleeping ex-prime ministers lie. Curiosity's got the better of me, though. So uh, how did it come about that you were invited to help celebrate Sarah Netanyahu's birthday? Uh, I can't imagine that you mix in the same social circles. No, we don't. We don't. Even though I must say, and very few people know it, that as a child, I had a very deep connection to Netanyahu's family. Not to Netanyahu, but to his uncles. I knew all of them, uh, most of them living in the States. I grew up really, uh, in many ways, my first genes in Tel Aviv carried the name of his cousin, Coco Milo, I always went with this Coco Milo because they used to send it to the laundry. So the name was on, on my first jeans in Tel Aviv in the 60s. So, but this has nothing to do with it. Uh, my friend, Benny Zifer, whom both of us know very well, the literary editor of Haaretz, is in good contact with the Netanyahu's for quite a while now. And he uh, organized this dinner which originally was supposed to be a very intimate dinner in uh, Bennett Sifer's house in the kibbutz in the north. But finally, it was moved to the, his other home in Ranana, where more people were invited. And Sifer uh, uh, invited me after, uh, I think, getting asked by Netanyahu to invite me. And I was very happy and very keen to go. Bibi specifically asked for your your presence there? Uh, this would be, no, no, I, I don't want to go so far, but I, I guess he knew I'm coming. I guess uh, uh, Benny Ziffer told me that, uh, that he was very uh, interested in me coming there, but I don't know. Okay. How did you find him? Uh, unfortunately, very impressive. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, very different than the public image. 
unfortunately, someone who is willing also to listen and not only to talk, who is willing to talk not only about himself, but also really about other issues, things which are quite rare among politicians. I mean, we know them all and very few of them are ready to listen. Very few of them are uh, interested in other subjects except of themselves. And above all, very few of them are in his personal level. Nobody can deny this. You say, unfortunately, is it not more unfortunate that he didn't bring some of those more charming elements to his prime ministerial style? I, I wouldn't call it charming. I would call it really more impressive. And impressive, I mean, anyone who met this man, uh, as far as I know, was quite impressed by him. He has presence. Look, if I compare him to all the other living Israeli politicians, it's not the same standard. To whom will we uh, compare him? And I'll say even more than this, the huge scandal that evoked after I wrote about him just shows what kind of emotions this man is still, as an ex-prime minister, is still evoking among the Israelis, leftists and right-wingers. You know, I could meet anyone else and praise anyone else and nobody would care. I could meet anyone else and nobody would be so curious to hear exactly the details, how did he sit, how did he behave, what language did he speak, etc. Because there is something in this man which drives the Israelis crazy for 12 years, both in hatred and admiration. You wrote in, in your article that no approbatory essay about a different Israeli politician, leave dead or living, would have provoked a similar dance of hatred. You must have known that dining with him wouldn't go down well, even with people who generally agree with what you have to say. This was one of the reasons that I wrote about this evening, because I really wanted to challenge his uh, rivals, his, uh, mainly the, the Zionist left. You know, the real leftists didn't care so much. Those who really freaked out were the Zionist left or the central left or whatever you call them. They really freaked out. And why did they freak out, you may ask, Simon? And I'll tell you that it's a very, very sad story of emptiness. The Zionist left lost its way a long time ago. And 12 years ago, it got a hell of a gift, Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu brought them back to, to, to life. This uh, sleeping uh, camp all of a sudden woke up. There is something to fight against. There is someone to hate. There is a reason to get united against this Satan, against this terrible, terrible enemy. While all this was a cover up to the fact that Practically, they have nothing to, to, to present as an alternative. Was that also true when Netanyahu came to power in 1996? Look, it started then. In 96, still there were those hopes and dreams about Oslo, uh, Rabin's assassination. Uh, there was still a camp that believed, rightly so or not, that he has a way, that this way can, can succeed, that they have a leadership, but gradually they lost it all. Mm.
And is that perhaps not Netanyahu's greatest sin, the, the killing of that hope in, in, in 96 and systematically dismantling any progress that had been made? And is that not why he's so hated today? No, because the hope was an illusion. We know it now. I didn't know it then. I was part of this uh, euphoria. But it was a great illusion then. And it's not Netanyahu put an end to it. It, it just faded out because there was nothing there. Because Oslo led to nowhere. Because Israel was not courageous enough really to touch the core issues in Oslo. Uh, any agreement with the Palestinians not mentioning the settlements project, I mean, what kind of hope does it offer if you don't even agree to stop building new uh, uh, settlements? And the moment that I realized that the core issue is not touched, I realized that it was a trap. And, and the core issue, as you wrote in, I think, both of these pieces about the, the dinner party, is Israel becoming a, an apartheid state. Yeah, I mean, I think very few can deny it anymore. Uh, I think the only uh, uh, argument is if Israel can be already defined as an apartheid state or it's just about to become one. But nobody can deny that an occupation of 52, 53 years, which has no intention to come to its end, stops being a, con a, a, a contemporary phenomena, a temporary phenomena. Nobody can claim occupation is temporary, for sure not. I think it was never meant to be temporary, but now nobody can claim it seriously that it's temporary. Now, if the occupation is not a temporary phenomena, then Israel declares itself as an apartheid state. I mean, it's not a question of argument, is it apartheid or not? Israel says we are an apartheid state because we don't have any intention to put an end to the occupation and because we have no intention to give the Palestinian equal rights. Without equal rights, it is apartheid, period. So is Netanyahu's work done? Has he accomplished what he wanted to do by putting Israel firmly and inevitably on that path? I think the main project of Netanyahu, which is also his biggest success from his point of view, was to put the Palestinian issue off the table. To put it off the table mainly in the international arena, but also domestically. And he succeeded like no one before. The world lost interest, the Arab world is losing interest, and obviously the Israelis lost interest in any kind of solution, in any kind of the problems, it is all off the table. And this was his purpose because Netanyahu never believed in peace with the Palestinians and never believed in surely not equal rights, but also not the two-state solution. So his success is just to put it off the table, which is the worst that can happen. Because once nobody talks about it, nothing is going to happen. That's his big success. But I must remind you that the, the one who, who came before him, who were a Nobel, Peace Nobel Prize uh, winners, did not much more. They just kept the illusion, but practically they did nothing to put an end to the occupation. So what is the big difference?
if Netanyahu, and this is obviously an imaginary world, if Netanyahu had put an end to the occupation, by whatever means, for whatever reason, would you be able to overlook his his other sins slash crimes, alleged crimes, we should say? I mean, being a populist and a polarizer isn't a crime, but what about his racist incitement, his blatant lies, and his alleged corruption, which, you know, he's on trial for as we speak. Does none of that put him personally beyond the pale? Look, Simon, there is one issue which is uncomparable to any other issues which define Israel, defines its moral character, defines its borders, defines its international status, defines daily life. And this is the issue of Israel's regime. Is it a democracy or is it an apartheid state? Anyone who would lead Israel toward a democracy and put end to the apartheid system will by me be forgiven for anything else. But it is so theoretical because Netanyahu is so far of being the man who will do it. Not that I see anyone else, by all means not. And therefore, it's much easier for me to compliment Netanyahu because it's not like if Netanyahu steps down, then the sun will shine. No, no, no. And we see it now. We see the alternative government with criminalizing uh, human rights organizations like Netanyahu never did before, with continuing the, the occupation as if nothing, continuing the apartheid, as if nothing with a very brutal behavior of the army without any slightest change from Netanyahu's time. So what's the big deal of getting rid of Netanyahu, for God's sake? It sounds that, uh, but, but for a simple twist of fate, you and Bibi could have been friends. Um, friends, I'm not sure. I don't think I would like to be a friend of any politician. You know, after so many years of knowing politicians quite from close, mm. almost all of them couldn't be my friends. I mean, they, they are so, I don't want to say corrupted, but they, their life and their world is not exactly my life and my world. So if you speak about real personal friends, I don't see myself being a friend of a politician because by the end of the day, they have to compromise so many things which you and me as journalists don't have to. Hmm. Tell me, Gidon, did, uh, did Bibi congratulate you on being awarded the Sokolov Prize? The, the award ceremony was just a couple of days before the birthday party, right? Right, this was my birthday gift that uh, could uh, uh, really challenge all those who congratulate me. <laughs> uh, I could really slap them on the face with, with, the, with the dinner with Netanyahu. Uh, no, he didn't, and I didn't hear from him ever since we met there in this party. And I'm very happy I didn't hear from him. I really don't want to mix between, you know, we shouldn't mix too much with politicians in any case, with journalists. Mm. And for sure, I wouldn't like to mix with Netanyahu too much. I'm very happy that I did what I did because I really followed my truth. And my truth is that he is an impressive man and he's not any worse than all the others and that he serves the left for its, for its uh, hypocrisy 
and doing nothing about peace, they could really get to the streets and fight for a cause, and the cause was hollow. And this is what I wanted to expose. And this happened by this hysterical, violent reaction toward me, daring to say something about Netanyahu, which might sound positive, and taking from their hands their toy, the only toy they have in their hand, namely hating this man and demonizing him as if he's the worst ever. I'll tell you more than this. He's not even the most corrupted Israeli politician. Mm. I know few who are more corrupted than him. So, you know, if you want to run away from the main issues and concentrate on minor issues, and for me, corruption is a minor issue because the real big corruption, you know what is the real big corruption of Israel. It's not the cigars and the champagne bottles. It's the occupation of this thing. So much like you, I think uh, Netanyahu is the, the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd be very happy to attend the next birthday in one year. Gidon, allow me on behalf of the podcast and our listeners to congratulate you again on the Sokolov Prize and to thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Simon. It's always a great pleasure to be your guest, especially in Harrod's podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Gidon. Listener, that's all we've got time for this week. My thanks to Alan Leverett, Gidon Levy, and as always, our producer, Aaron Ehrlich. We'll be back again next Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until then, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.